Could you let us know how you got your start in blockchain? Yeah, happy to, Matthew. Thanks for having me. I'm Jordan Freed. I'm the chairman and CEO of Mutable Holdings, which is a Web3 holding company. We are the owners of NFT.com, and we're building that as a social marketplace and aggregator that we are taking to market. We've been in private beta now, um, and we will be in full public beta at some point in Q1 of 2023. Among other things, Immutable Holdings also owns CoffeeandCrypto.com, which is a daily newsletter that we send out to over 40,000 people all about what's going on in crypto, and it's called Coffee and Crypto because it's funny and you can finish it before you finish your morning cup of coffee. So it's kind of like a pain-free way to, you know, consume everything you have to know about what's going on in, in our Web3 world. Yeah, that's a little bit about me. Before this, I was the part of the founding team of a layer one blockchain protocol called Hedera Hashgraph, which has a coin called HBAR. That's one of the top crypto protocols in the world, and I'm really proud of that. And I stumbled into this space, I guess this is the good transition. While running a previous startup, I started a company in Budapest, Hungary called Buffered VPN. And Honestly, feels like a lifetime ago. I was barely 20 something and I built a personal VPN tool called Buffered VPN. And we were one of the first consumer payment or consumer software companies that started taking Bitcoin as a payment method. It's now been about a decade that I've been in this world of blockchain, digital currency, Web3 now. It's changed names, I feel like every three years, but I'll just call it crypto and it's been a blast. I'm looking forward to the next 10 years. I will likely spend the rest of my career focused on the problems around decentralization. That's cool. What projects are going on that y'all are, that you have under your holding group that you can share that you're excited about? Yeah, I would say the biggest one is definitely NFT.com. I was fortunate enough to buy that domain name at a time where the board of Yacht Club. Yeah, That's I appreciate awesome. that. The Board Ape Yacht Club didn't exist. So lots of uh, NFTs weren't mainstream quite yet. If you go back to 2018, you had your crypto kitties and you had very obscure NFTs. NFTs have been around since a 2012 white paper where an individual named Manny Rosenfeld came up with this idea of doing a non-fungible token. But they've only really been implemented, you could say, for the better part of the past five, six years. And to buy that domain name... And then to have what happened in 2021 was either just serendipitous, a fortunate accident, right place, right time. So Board Ape Yacht Club happened. NFT volumes went from literally nothing, sub-million dollars per week to we saw at the peak of this past market about $1.2 billion in NFT volume, U.S. dollars on a weekly basis. Hundreds of thousands of daily active buyers and sellers of NFTs, just peak exuberance. Obviously, things have corrected tremendously. The daily users of NFTs is back down to 20,000, and everyone's saying NFTs are dead. But by far, the project I'm most excited about from its future, just the future of the core technology NFTs are going to be something that if you're listening to this and you're alive in 10 years, you're going to be using them. It's just matter of fact. I have no doubt in my mind about that. By leaps and bounds, the thing I'm most excited about is this, this ability for us to assign value in the form of an NFT on a globally distributed ledger. That's an awesome opportunity. We've got three clients that are going heavy into NFTs right now. I can't speak with that much conviction that they're going to be around in 10 years, 10 years, but I can say that there are clients that are going headlong into it. And I can't speak with that much conviction because I just don't know enough about it. But yeah, there, there are other clients saying the same thing. 
Good to know. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so take me back just a few years. How did you? Why did you? Why didn't you run a PE firm? Why didn't you run a venture capital firm if you had that much capital? Why? Why did you decide to go the holding company route? Are you glad you did? Let's talk about that. Yeah. So to be clear, I didn't come from money. Money was not something that I grew up in a really nice middle class family. One of 10 kids. My parents obviously didn't have enough money to give a full college degree to each one of the kids. So it became clear to me, I was either going to have to take out a bunch of debt, go to college and do that. And I started doing that, by the way, I went to college for about two years before I just stopped going to class. And it just, the, my sort of framework was I never had a lot of money, so I would have to bootstrap. And we started Buffered VPN for about a thousand dollars. And it was, it was just build something as cheap as you could, get as many customers as you can. I had capital after selling that business. I was able to take that capital, start another business, and that did really well. That was Hedera. And then to be able to take capital from Hedera and be able to start Immutable Holdings. The reason I pursued the holding company model was it enabled me to organize things in my mind. I knew I wanted to build things in blockchain. I knew that these things would be synergistic, each one benefiting another. Let me just demonstrate. You know, we own a newsletter, again, called coffeeandcrypto.com, which goes out to tens of thousands of people on a daily basis. But that, that also serves as a great marketing channel for us when we build something like nft.com. So you can see the synergy between these two things. And we can almost be our own advertiser in our own newsletter. And we knew that as that newsletter would grow, so would the user base of nft.com and even vice versa, users of nft.com that are looking to learn about other things going on in crypto could subscribe to Coffee and Crypto. And Coffee and Crypto is 100% free. It's just purely informative. So that's why we pursued the holding company model. It was a cool framework for us. We could scale an engineering team. That engineering team initially could work on one product. Maybe we could move them to another particular project. We could also scale a legal team and a marketing team and then focus on where those needs are. Where's the legal work needed at the moment? Where's the marketing work? There's synergies across businesses. In the midst of that response, you led me to another question. We might go back to your answer to that one here in just a minute. But have you, so I hate saying like pop culture words because I don't know, I think they get overused at times. But one phrase that I hear a lot about Web3 blockchain crypto is community. We're all about building the community for the end user. Are you guys attacking that in a certain way? Are you attacking it in a different way than maybe other people are? We are. So I think the one of the big distinctions between Web 2 and Web 3 is the framework for how you build and launch products. I think in Web 2, it used to be the case that you'd, you've heard the stories, right? Mark Zuckerberg goes into a dorm room, codes an application, all alone, siloed brings that application to market in the form of the first version of the Facebook um, and DMs it out to his entire class listserv of college kids at Harvard for them to go check out basically photos of each other and comment on them. So one of the core fundamentals or primitives of like Web3 beliefs is this notion of open source, open license. So people build in the open. The code of a blockchain is the way we trust blockchains and smart contracts as it is, it's open source. Anyone that knows how to read code can read it. Um, and then slowly we've started to see the way we develop products shift from the perspective that someone will introduce a white paper, will introduce a code base, and then interest will form around that code base. People will say, oh, wow, that code base is interesting. 
and then developers will come and actively contribute. The Ethereum network continues to evolve and improve based on engineers coming to look at it and submitting what are called EIPs, like Ethereum improvement proposals that integrated into the code base in some way, shape, or form. That's how we got tokens on the Ethereum network and how we got this concept of C721s, an NFT smart contract. So the it's a long-winded way of me saying community comes a lot sooner and it's typically a community that is helping take successful blockchain projects to market like you can't have a uniswap without a really big community you can't have it an open sea even without a really big community of active creators and collectors so i think the successful web3 projects understand that they try to build community before product is even into the market. And then the web two notion was, okay, let's get a product market fit as quickly as possible, or let's get minimal viable product to market as quickly as possible. I'm seeing a lot of people focus first and foremost on let's build minimal viable community. And then let's build a product that solves this community's problem or this community's need or desire. And it's actually a I think it's an evolutionary way of getting product market fit faster because you built your community first. Your community always believes one thing typically, and then you're trying to get market fit with your product, with your product to that particular community. Community is everything in building Web3 products. That sounds like a different way of building a team, like internally. Is that to some extent it is right you need different skill sets at different points in time i think the pr a lot of people can build really great products but if you can't obviously take your product to market you're not no one's going to end up using it so i think people are just prioritizing growth of a community a prospective future user base earlier and then delivering really great offerings to them and by the way it's not even a centralized group of people doing this the most successful projects have lots of developers that are contributing code to it it's not it's not like just vitalik buterin who's the co-founder of the ethereum network it's not just one person writing the code now you've got code contributions from hundreds and in some cases thousands of people all over the world that are making their way into the code base so yeah you do need different skills at a different stage for that and you need community builders which are like new age growth marketers at a much earlier stage that can do that well in a project. I like to spend at least some time during each episode just talking about what we can do to bring people in to the network. So you think about a 25-year-old developer. What could they be learning right now to slowly get acclimated to blockchain, dip their toes in it, and eventually get hired there? Yeah, I think the most important thing is to just be aware of everything that's going on a daily basis. There's a lot of really great news sources, but I think the best engineers, most of them have these amazing stories of learning how to code by just trying to code, by literally hacking together code bases. I don't call myself a full-blown engineer, but I became a front end, let's call me a hacker from just copying WordPress templates and putting them back together and figuring out how to put PHP files and CSS style sheets together and things of that nature. I think the best engineers in crypto are the ones that were most curious about the Ethereum virtual machine, were most curious about Solidity as a programming language and just started reverse engineering, you know, hello world smart contracts. And by the way, for those that are watching what's happening in AI right now, you can 
go ask chat GPT to write you a smart contract. And it's not always perfect in full disclosure, but you will understand at least the basics of what chat GPT is putting together for it. And I, I found that to be a really interesting tool myself to just understand the different, the different variables that have to go into making a smart contract work on the Ethereum network. Let's say I encourage people to just look at the coolest or most active GitHub repositories in the space and just try to track what's going on in each of those communities. And then I, the second one would be probably joining the communities themselves, going in and there's typically a developer chat. There's typically like a, a community chat. It used to be back in the days when we were building Hedera, that used to be a Telegram channel. It then morphed into a Discord channel where we had developers hanging out with developer advocates who worked at the protocol that would help them develop on that protocol. But there's so many people online that are just exchanging notes and chatting about new things that they're building for the various different networks. Join those code communities. Where do you feel like blockchain is headed? Web3 is headed? In the next year, like something we can wrap our hands around. I don't want to put people in this odd spot where they have to project 20 years down the road. But like in the pretty near future, where do you see it going that we can wrap our hands around? And For technical people listening, it's like we now have a multi-party, multi-member. We have a multi-party, multi-master database. We have these things on a blockchain that multiple people can read, multiple people can write. And now by running infrastructure and owning pieces of the protocol, they can own. the. There's been a fundamental shift in the user, the user's interaction with the internet. And that's happened in every shift. I like to call web one, like the read only version of the internet. The web two was the read and the write, And then web three is read, write, own. Like you can become a stakeholder. You can become an owner of these protocols. The first thing that we were doing on a blockchain, like what email was to the internet is Bitcoin to a blockchain. It's okay. Here's this global ledger. We're now going to keep account balances, a bunch of ones and zeros that says Matthew has a hundred and Jordan has 99. And we're going to store that information in the ledger. And I think what excites me about the future of these ledgers is we can do other things with them. We can store files, we can store other information. We can use these ledgers to store other values of ownership, like an NFT. The immediate thing I'm excited about is how we're using NFTs or have been using NFTs for the past three years is not how we're going to be using them for the next three years or 10 years. I think that NFTs are likely going to be applied to everything of value and our physical verse is going to be represented in this digital verse, this metaverse in the form of an NFT. So that could be the authenticity certificate of a luxury good, a Rolex, an LVMH handbag, or the title deed to a physical property. Those will be owned and exchanged on blockchains and that'll manifest in the form of NFTs. So I think now that we've got the underlying technology, there's a lot of really smart people all over the world figuring out how else are we going to be using this technology. And it's a really great ledger. We've proven it's a really great ledger, and that's gotten us to hundreds of millions of users all over the globe. The question then becomes, now that we have all this value on the ledger, what else can we exchange that value for? Can we exchange that value for physical goods? Can we exchange that for real estate? Can we exchange that for in-game items? And then there's going to be this massive economy that just balloons out of people sitting around thinking, what else can we do on blockchains? And that's really exciting to think about. I see some books behind you that I've read, at least two of them. Sure. It makes me think, have you... It's a not very fair comparison or fair analogy, but have you read something 10 years ago that really applies in your day-to-day -day work now? Or have you 
read something in the past, maybe through Coffee and Crypto, <laughs> that's like really changed the way you've thought about when problems come, when opportunities come, how you make decisions. Yeah. First, too many. I've read too many things that fall into the yes. category of that question, but let me try to focus on the most <laughs> oh, impactful. I, I thought you were saying I've read too many books. I am that way. I think I've read too many competing books. And so it's like, what do I do? I don't really know. But yeah, yeah. That, the, that's for another uh, so, podcast. Yeah. So first, it's really easy to get analysis paralysis. And there comes a time to yeah. read a book and learn something. And the first thing I'll say is why I love books. So I don't read fiction. I only read nonfiction. And in nonfiction, nonfiction is having a billionaire mentor who is telling you how he did what he did. And you can find like hundreds of books that fit into that category, right? Everyone's got one from Michael Dell to like Richard Branson to lots of really fun books where you can just learn all about these really amazing people, learn what they did to get to where they are. And that's such a great cheat code life hack. And that's a really great thing to do in your teenage years and your early twenties. I heard this really great, great quote from a mentor that said, you spend your twenties figuring it out and then your thirties doing it. So there comes a time to be reading books and like self-educating and I'm always reading something, but then there comes a time to like literally stop reading another self-help book or business book and just try, just do, just do and do relentlessly and do it every day. One of my favorite books on that is this book called The War of Art by a Stephen, I believe it's Stephen Pressfield. And The War of Art is this unbelievable book that walks people through this life force called resistance. And for those listening that have ever been working on something big, like a big life goal, or you're getting just about to the point of completion of a project, there's like this crazy resistance, all of the struggle that we go through to get shit done. Just stay on task and deliver the project, stay on task and accomplish the goal to lose those last five pounds in the gym or gain those last five pounds of muscle like this all, or just get that business to this next revenue marker. There's like this crazy resistance that presents itself where they're like we self-sabotage or we get distracted or something along those lines. And the book is really all about defeating that creative muse or finding that creative muse and, and defeating that, that resistance that stops you from creating, that stops you from sitting down and writing the blog post or sitting down and recording the interview or sitting down and uploading the video up to YouTube. Like how, what is that resistance? How do you overcome that? And how do the best people do it? So for me, by the way, you can read this book in a day. If you haven't read this book, low key, one of my favorite business books of all time. And it's largely because it's not framed as a business book, but it's about fighting that force that prevents you from just doing and then just fucking relentlessly execute after you do it. And I just, I love that. I probably read that at least once every six to 12 months. I definitely read that at least once per year. And I've been doing that for a decade. So highly recommend that if I had to pick one other, there's this great book called The Surrender Experiment by, I, I think it's either Michael Singer or Steven Singer. I think it's Michael Singer. And he just, it's about an entrepreneur, but an accidental entrepreneur who talks about surrendering to, to timing where I think the biggest complaint I hear people is they're impatient. They're impatient. They want to be millionaires by the time they're like 25. They like, they're just so desperate to get to where they're trying to get to. And what Michael Singer got really good at is silencing that inner voice and surrendering to everything has a right place and a right time. And if you can get really good at just getting patient and doing one thing for long time periods, AKA find discipline and don't get distracted, then just tremendous things happen. Great success happens. You can make your own luck in that regard. Yeah. Those are probably two not obvious ones, but two that definitely had a big impact on me. My grandpa, <clears throat> this was like five years ago. He's in his nineties 
and he put his arm around me and said, I can't really remember exactly what he said, but the gist of it was, if y'all would just take your time just a little bit more, things would work out a lot better for you. And I think that was true. Just have a little bit of patience. Maybe not set a goal to be a millionaire by 20. That's a fine goal, but maybe extend it out just a little bit. Have a it, it, wise words from what sounds like a wise man. Too many people don't don't get that. I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready to do it in my early twenties. It took me till my late twenties, my mid to late twenties, before I ever started having business success. And that's that was after trying for seven years, relentlessly dropping out of college and then finally making something happen. So if you haven't been doing it for seven years yet, you don't really have a right to be impatient. Sit down and write every day for seven years and you'll become a great writer. Sit down and podcast every day for seven years, you'll become a great writer. You look at like Mr. Beast. He's like the perfect example of this. Mr. Beast, one of the most successful YouTubers of all time. That dude has been uploading to YouTube since he was like 10 or 12 years old and he's been at it for a decade. Like Mr. Beast is Mr. Beast because he has more reps than anyone else. He has spent more time. And if you talk to Mr. Beast, so this will be the first to tell you, he's really dumb about like literally everything in life except YouTube. He spends more time watching YouTube videos than anyone else in the world and more time creating and uploading YouTube than anyone else in the world. And that is why Mr. Beast is the best. He's also a talented person and that helps too. But if you've been doing it for 10 years and you're still not successful, maybe you have a right to complain. But just do anything every day for 10 years and you're gonna get pretty damn good at that thing. Wise advice. Let's go back to the holding company. So you have a holding company and I would assume some of your employees are remote, not uh, work. Most of our team is remote, if not all of our team. Some of us are technically in the same cities. Like I think most of us live in or around Puerto Rico where I live right now, but that's not even a large number of people. That's five people. Everybody else is someone on our team lives in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Someone on our team is in Vancouver. Someone on our team is in Austin, Texas. Just like people are spread out all over. And it's, I'll be honest, it's my first my first true time where I've always had a hybrid workplace where we had an office, but then sometimes we would just be out of the office. I've never had a fully remote work environment and it has taken, it's obviously, listen, I think COVID accelerated the rate at which we all got used to it and showed us we could all do it. But uh, yeah, I'm still old school in the way that like, I do love having a physical place that I can show up to every day. Yeah. So we're fully remote as well. And it's a challenge getting being able to manage all of that, I think is a challenge for me. Do you feel like that's the challenge for you or is the challenge coming from somewhere else? Yeah, hundred percent. It's a challenge. I think a lot of people or ask about management from the perspective of it's easier to feel like you're in control when your team is showing up every day and you can see them and you can like physically view what they're working on. It's easy to feel really out of control when you show up to your breakfast table or office desk, home office desk, and you can't see anybody and you don't know what anybody's doing. So listen, there's ways to like change that. Like we have people check in and stand up threads where, you know, some of the engineers show up and just write, Hey, this is today. This is what I'm focused on today. Here's what I'm focused on. And maybe they'll check in again at the end of the day. You do regular standups where three times a week team together and just catch up. We do a start of the week meeting where everybody just comes together and we talk about the goals for that week and what everybody is going to be focused on to get closer to those goals. So there's ways to overcome that. I think you also want to be careful. I think a lot of people have overcorrected, at least a lot of the companies I've seen during COVID have like overcorrected and just burdened their teams with so many meetings. So I look at some people and I look at their calendars and their calendars.
calendars, unless you're a salesperson, your calendar probably shouldn't be like, you know, 10 hours of like Zoom calls or eight hours of Zoom calls. Like unless you're selling, unless your job is to get on the phone and prospect and qualify and try to sell, like it's you, especially you don't want your engineers and your creative people on six or eight hours of calls on a daily basis. You want them writing code. You want them creating their copy or their ads or their videos. So whatever they're working on, I just, I find that it's, I look at sometimes one of my favorite things to do is, Hey, if you're comfortable, can you show me your calendar? I'm just, I'm curious how people spend their time and I'm blown away by how many people are just like in 20 hours of meetings per week. I'm like, so when do you work? <laughs> like when do you do what your title says you do? Yes. Yeah, exactly. If you're in 20 hours of meetings, are you only doing your job for 20 hours? It's hard to do any productive work when you're in a meeting. Yeah, yeah. Jordan, we're run up on our time. Direct the listeners to how they can connect with you or Coffee and Crypto, however you choose. Yeah, I think the two best places to go start, go check out www.coffeeandcrypto.com. It's a free daily newsletter. You can read it in three to five minutes every morning while you're drinking your morning cup of coffee. And we have nothing to sell you. Just go check it out because it's funny and it's informative. So that's probably the best place. And then also go check out nft.com. Pretty easy to type in. A lot easier than coffee and crypto, just nft.com. And uh, go check out what we're building over there. And then I'm everywhere on social under just Jordan Freed just like this, J-O-R-D-A-N-F-R-I-E-D. Sometimes I tweet, I mostly tweet about Web3. Go check me out there. Thanks for sharing at least part of your story. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Thanks, Matthew.